You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Sometimes it feels as if science is like a ping-pong game back and forth. Let's see what's on the radio here. Yeah, catch up on the latest news. Authorities later convinced the man to let the squirrel go. Turning to health news, a reversal in resveratrol. If you were as excited as I was to hear that the antioxidant found in chocolate and red wine was good for you, this may come as a bummer. Scientists now say that the health benefits of resveratrol were not supported in a new study from Johns Hopkins. Too bad. Chocolate and wine was my health regimen. Moving on to sports. In the tetherball Really? Just last month, studies said that chocolate was good for you. That's depressing. Switch to the astronomy news station. Putting it at a distance of 5 parsecs, although my personal estimate is at 4.8 parsecs. Now this next bit of news is just loony. Scientists say that the moon is not as old as we thought. New analysis of lunar rocks puts the moon at between 4.4 and 4.45 billion years old, at least 60 million years younger than previous estimates. Well, personally, I never thought the man in the moon looked a day over 4 billion years. <laughs> Turning now to the solar wind What? Board. The moon is younger than we thought? What do scientists know anyway? Well, scientists do know a lot, except for those things that they don't know. And, of course, that has the public questioning scientific results because it sounds as if the conclusions are always in flux. And they never say that they're certain about something. Nothing is ever proven. They just say there's a high probability that this is true. It sounds as though they're hedging their bets somehow. It's enough to make the public suspicious. I'm Seth Shostak, and I am a scientist. And I'm suspicious of you. I'm Molly Bentley, and this is our monthly look at critical thinking skeptic check from Big Picture Science. And by the way, those stories about resveratrol and the moon's age are real. And in this hour, we raise our collective eyebrows at science itself. Why can't scientists simply decide when a fact is ironclad? Why this whiplash reversal in the conclusions of scientific studies? I mean, we want to believe that chocolate is good for us. Can't you guys just let it be? Find out why they can't. Also, big picture science plays skeptical poker. Ante up. Here you go. Hey, you dealt me a weak statistical result. Shh, Jay, don't say what your cards are. That's the deal coming up on Skeptic Check. Check the skeptics. They say that a true journalist just doesn't have any friends. You can't fight the man and make pals along the way. Everyone is under suspicion. 
And it would seem that the same maxim might apply to scientists. For example, how could Stanford University researcher John Ioannidis have faced or even kept any scientific buddies after publishing a paper entitled Why Most Published Research Findings Are False? In it, he points out the ways that misunderstanding can occur between data and the conclusions drawn from them. For example, in a medical study, the group being observed may be too small to draw any meaningful conclusions. And in this paper, now almost a decade old, Professor Ioannidis questions the results of fellow scientists and validates many of them, and in doing so does exactly what his peers would expect of him, rigorously evaluating the way that science is conducted. Since then, he's launched the Meta Research Innovation Center at Stanford, a department dedicated to evaluating how scientific research is conducted. John, how could a study that's not good science even get published in a peer-reviewed journal? There's a very high chance that uh, a study that is suboptimal eventually may get published in a scientific journal. We do have uh, rigorous standards. We do have peer review. Uh, Everybody's trying to do their best. But science is very difficult. So lots of our findings and lots of our conclusions may be wrong, even though we have the best intentions. How do you even identify bad science then? I mean, it's in the journal. It must be true. It could be difficult. I think for an outsider, it's extremely difficult. But uh, there are some rough rules. For example, you can look at how big the study is, whether it was what we call well-powered to address the question that it had in mind, uh, whether it had a chance to address the question that it had in mind. Uh, You can look at some main features of the design. Is it well-controlled for clinical medicine? For example, when we test uh, drugs or other treatments, we want to have randomized trials, ideally, not just data collections. Uh, You can uh, look at what are the potential conflicts of interest. Are there financial conflicts of interest or are there possibilities that the interpretation of the results may be uh, manipulated in one way or another? Well, could we take an example, uh, a concrete example? So for a long time, people thought that if women were to be given hormone treatment after menopause, they would do great and we would cut their rates of having heart attacks and major cardiovascular events and stroke. And we thought about that for a long time because we had studies suggesting it. But then we performed randomized trials, and and one of them was very big, the Women's Health Initiative, that found that actually probably were harming women on average if if we go for that therapeutic intervention. What went wrong in this case with the postmenopausal hormone therapies? Was it just that the original study didn't have enough people? There was just sort of noise in the study? Was it fraud? What was it? It was not fraud. Fraud is probably an uncommon occurrence in science. Uh, You can think of uh, fraud being extremely rare in science. People who spend their life uh, training to become a scientist, obviously they could have done many other things and go down many other paths other than science if if fraud was their intention. In, In that case, some of the best scientists in the world were involved in the initial studies, and the studies were fairly large, but they were not randomized. Uh, So they were subject to lots of biases that could have ensued and that could have created different groups between the women who were taking hormones and those who were not taking hormones. So uh, on top of that, you can add some external pressure. You can add some external pressure, for example, from manufacturers of hormones that want to disseminate their product and uh, maybe some pressure on professionals to generate guidelines that would promote an intervention for widespread use. And this is where things can get distorted and you can have millions of women being treated without really having a good reason for that. You'll pardon me if I'm making an unfair a generalization here because, you know, my field is astronomy and, yes, things are published and it turns out that they were wrong. But to begin with, it doesn't affect my health if they're wrong. So it's, you know, an intellectual trip up, if you will. 
But the other thing is it does strike me that I read a lot more about, you know, we thought it was this, and then it turned out it was that. This set of foodstuffs you should eat and that you shouldn't, and then it changes six months later. Uh, is there something endemic, something particular to the field of health and medicine that leads to these kinds of, uh, if you will, errors? I'm not sure that medicine is necessarily worse in that regard than many other fields. Uh, there's uh, obviously variability across different scientific fields, and there's differences in how big are the studies that are being done, how much of a collaboration spirit there exists of people who would share their data compared to astronomy or, or physics. To give an example from high-energy physics, about 40,000 scientists have joined forces in the CERN experiments. And after several years of work, they came up with one particle that they identified, the Higgs boson. Think about that huge data set being split into 40,000 pieces and each scientist being told that you need to find a particle like Higgs boson. Otherwise, you're not going to be promoted. You're not going to be getting more funding. How many particles do you think you would come up with in, in the high-energy physics literature if that were to be the operating paradigm? If instead of having that common effort, we had fragmented our efforts to small pieces and small data sets for each one of the scientists to work separately and without collaborating, probably we would have come up with lots of spurious findings. <laughs> and the good thing is that you can improve some of these research practices that are operating in different scientific fields to move some of the fields that have the lower credibility to higher levels of credibility. Well, let, let me go over some of that uh, with you. To begin with, there's the sample size. You're saying, you know, if this study doesn't involve a lot of people, then, of course, there's always noise in any study. And the noise may just be skewed a little bit and, and, and bias the result. And you decide that, you know, I've proven that this medication really works for this, when in fact you just didn't have enough people to really know that. that that's one thing, right? That's just small sample size. Exactly. So small studies have two problems. One is that if there is something to be discovered, you have a lower chance to discover it. What is less appreciated is that if there's nothing to be discovered, um, <laughs> you'll still, you'll you still may discover. still get it sometimes because <laughs> if you run many such small studies, um, you will find some significant results. But there are going to be red herrings that are not going to be replicated by rigorous studies. Now, what about these other things such as, you know, uh, preconceived biases or, if you will, external uh, pressures? For example, maybe somebody's funding you. Maybe there's a pharmaceutical company that has a vested interest in, in something you're studying and consequently you have the feeling maybe you ought to find what they want you to find. This could also be an issue. So financial biases, as you mentioned, are situations where someone has to gain by getting a specific result out of an experiment or a study or a clinical investigation or whatever. So it's something that one has to be very careful to set enough safeguards that these financial biases will not creep in in the design, conduct, analysis, and presentation of the results. What in your mind is maybe, I don't know, the most spectacular of misleading results uh, in the recent past? It's very difficult to choose because obviously there have been many uh, situations where major claims uh, have been completely reversed. So, for example, uh, fruits and vegetables on average are very good and having too much processed meat is not a good idea. But if you look at the literature, almost every nutrient has been associated with some major cancer outcome. At a paper that we published recently, we saw that uh, if you open a cookbook and you randomly select 50 ingredients, 40 of them have scientific studies claiming increased or decreased cancer risk. Out of those, it's likely that maybe three uh, might be genuine. This, I think, has led to the uh, 
the fact that people make fun now of the food police, as they call them, the people who tell you don't eat this or eat more of that and so forth because the field has reversed so many times that I think that a certain degree of credibility has been lost for these studies. This is very unfortunate because I think that food and uh, nutrition are extremely important. They do have uh, a major bearing on uh, disease outcomes. Uh, but I agree that uh, once we have a uh, background history of so many failures, the general public probably will feel that uh, this is not a credible field and maybe they should not pay attention. Uh, what is worrisome is that then we're losing credibility against other knowledge that is really highly credible. For example, there's no doubt that smoking is a major risk factor for killing people. And there's no doubt that if uh, people would quit smoking, they would gain several years of life, no matter when they stop. There's no doubt that some foods are important and, and some types of diet are better than others. But unfortunately, all of that gets buried in the mist and noise of lots of irreproducible results. It sounds like a lot of it is being tarred with the, the same brush, uh, deservedly or otherwise. What is the role of the media in all this, John, in getting research wrong and then kind of amplifying the, the conclusions? I think that mass media could add an extra layer of distortion to the whole picture. So by default, something that is newsworthy has to be extreme, unfortunately. Most scientific findings are not extreme. So media have to come up with uh, newsworthy stories every day, and therefore they may distort the scientific findings in a way that they seem to be extreme, but in fact they're not extreme. So that's very confusing. Yes. Well, I, I, I would concur with that absolutely. <laughs> well, finally then, John, how do you keep this skepticism about research from spinning into a kind of a distrust of science altogether? I mean, the kind of, I knew it, these scientists, they, they are often wrong. I shouldn't believe it. I, I mean, it's hard enough to get people to trust the conclusions of, you know, climate scientists or whatever. I mean, you can see that there's plenty of skepticism out there about science, and that's a changed situation from the situation after the Second World War. This is also very unfortunate because truly science is the best that has happened to human beings. Uh, and the scientific method is really the only method that we have to arrive to the truth about what's happening to our world and to ourselves and to our health and whatever else we want to study. At the same time, embedded in the scientific method is the notion of skepticism. So you cannot really apply the scientific method unless you're willing to test your hypothesis, unless you're willing to try to replicate what you have found, and you run a risk of refuting what you have found initially or not reaching the conclusion that maybe you believe should be the correct one. So this is inherent in the scientific process. If we convey the message to the public that science is always correct, we're going to run into trouble. If we convey the message that science is very difficult and it's the best that we have, and you should try to participate in the excitement of that scientific process that includes a lot of upheaval sometimes, then maybe the general public will respect science more. John Ioannidis, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for inviting me. John Ioannidis is a professor of medicine, health research and policy, and statistics, and is co-director of the Meta Research Innovation Center at Stanford University. And you can find a link to his paper, Why Most Published Research Findings Are False, on our website, bigpicturescience.org. Well, we started the show with this concept that the public can find scientific research studies frustrating. One day chocolate is good for you, the next day it's not good for you, that these studies seem to be reversed in a matter of you know weeks or months, and it leads to a skepticism about the veracity of science. Yeah, but as John Ioannidis points out, 
It's not that they're deliberately trying to get to the wrong answer or they want to reverse their position on chocolate. And no one wants to reverse the conclusion that chocolate is good for you. Yeah, no, I certainly wouldn't, particularly with nuts. (laughs) But his point is that there are a lot of things that can go wrong with the research. Their sample might not be large enough. In other words, they're not, you know, involving enough people that they can be sure that they've actually found an effect. Or there might be some sort of bias in the data that, uh, you know, maybe they want to find a certain result because their funding depends on it or, or their their ego's on the line. Well, another example is of bias is you might be studying the health of a population and you pick a group of people who all exercise but you're testing them for something else like vitamin D or whatever it would be, and you conclude that they're healthier than the general population, and yet the bias of the study is that all these people were healthier to begin with. Now, he's talking mostly about medical studies, but, you know, even in a physical science like astronomy, you can easily get faulty results if your data is biased because you looked at all the big galaxies because they were easier to study, and you draw some conclusion, you apply it to all galaxies. You and he talked about randomized trials. What's a randomized trial? Suppose you're trying to decide which of three medications actually helps with a given disease. You get a whole bunch of people and you assign them to take, you know, medication A, B, or C. You got to make sure that they're randomly chosen. They're chosen without any preconceived knowledge about their condition, their health, anything like that. And as he pointed out, the hormone studies um, that were then retracted, they were not randomized studies, and that was one of the problems. Okay, so uh, what should I believe? I mean, it's kind of confusing. It would seem as if science just doesn't have all the answers. And coming up, a scientist who says that science doesn't have all the answers. Plus, a game of skeptical poker. Can we deal you in? It's our monthly look at critical thinking from Big Picture Science. Skeptic check. Check the skeptics. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. We're checking the skeptics on Skeptic Check and learning that researchers, despite their credentials and the best of intentions, can be tripped up. And there are a number of red flags that scientists look for, and in fact, the public can use them too, that identify misleading research. And they actually have names. Well, there are so many of them. There's a whole laundry list. One is an appeal to unpublished studies. Yeah, the evidence is in that unpublished study, but where is that? Some guy's drawer? I can't get to it. (laughs) Hand-waving arguments. Love those. I can't write it down on a blackboard. Fundamentally, I'm just going to convince you with my gestures. And then there are spurious correlations. Throw a whole bunch of darts at a wall, and you'll get a bunch of data points, if you will, and you'll be able to find lines that go up, that go down. These are all spurious correlations. There's no meaningful pattern there. So there are a lot of things to look out for in science, and that means that you shouldn't always bet on the latest scientific result. Sit right here. Hey, Jay, how are you doing? Okay, everyone, as you know, it's skeptical poker. Ante up, toss in two disbeliefs and one serious reservation. These poker antes are getting steep. All right, it's going to be dealer's choice. That's five-card unpublished stud ease. Here you go, Gary. Thank you. Molly. Great. Jay. Hey, you dealt me a weak statistical result. Shh, Jay, don't say what your cards are. Left of dealer bets first, Molly. Well, looking at my cards here, I'll start the bidding and throw a little doubt on the table. There. All right, Gary. Well, I'll cast doubt as well. 
All right, getting warmed up. Jay? Does an unwarranted conclusion beat a hand-waving argument? Jay. Sorry, but I've never played. It's okay, Jay. No, in skeptical poker, a hand-waving argument always beats an unwarranted conclusion. It's the most dubious. Okay, but it doesn't trump, I've got a good feeling about this. Keep it moving, people. Uh, Jay, it's your bet. I've got doubts, too. Okay. I'm going to see your doubts and raise my suspicions. Hmm. Hmm. He's bluffing. You must have a good hand of bad data, Seth. You know, I'll see your suspicions there and raise you an eyebrow. What if she has an unconventional hypothesis? So? That's barely worth the raise of an eyebrow. I'll see your eyebrow raise Molly and give you all a sideways glance. Ooh. Mm. Mm. Well, that's pretty high stakes, Gary, skeptically speaking. I mean, you're basically showing total incredulity. So you fold? I didn't say that. Well, I fold. Besides my hand-waving argument and an unwarranted conclusion, I only had these. You don't show your cards when you fold? Let's see, a couple of statistical outliers and, oh, so you had the study without a control. That's super dubious. Okay, folks, it's just the three of us. Our cards reveal a variety of unprofessional conduct, as befits unpublished stud ease. So what do we have as bets so far? Let's see. The ante of doubt, then raised suspicions and raised eyebrows. Okay, I'll see Gary's sideways glance and add more skepticism with my misgivings. All of them, a roll of the eyeballs. Wow. Wow. And one, you've got to be joking. I fold. Seth, I see your misgivings. Throw in my own, also my rolling eyeballs. My own, you have got to be joking. And I call into question your scientific results. He's calling. Read them and weep, Gary. I've got fudged data, a two-sigma result, a sample size of five, an unwarranted extrapolation, and... Bias on the part of the researcher. Look at that. Yep. You can't get results more questionable than these. In most poorly monitored laboratories, no, you can't. I'll give you that. That's good, Seth. However, when there's total lack of supervision, grant money doesn't materialize, and the pressure for tenure is high... One total lack of rigor, and four, count them, four cooked lab reports with eraser marks still visible. Man. Unbelievable. That's not just dubious. It's fraud. But that's five-card unpublished stud. Ease for you. All right, I'll just take the winnings. <laughs> yeah, that's good, Gear. Okay, uh, one more round? Okay, All right, sure. yeah, yeah sounds right. good. Okay, uh, Molly, dealer's choice. Okay, how about five-card draw-your-own-spurious correlation? Oh, yeah. That sounds good to me. Deal me in. That sounds all right. So what we're hearing is that there are plenty of reasons we need to be skeptical in science. But, hey, the scientific method, it's supposed to fix all this. The way data are challenged with new data or peer review, you know, a bunch of experts, or just the natural skepticism of the scientists themselves, all of that will ensure that faulty results will be uncovered and corrected. The facts will eventually out. Well, actually, there are facts that may continue to elude us. Even with our best tools and our sharpest minds, there may be some natural phenomena that will always remain a mystery. At least the answers and the meaning that we derive from them won't come via the scientific method. That, according to Marcelo Gleiser, and he's very pro-science, a physicist, an astronomer at Dartmouth College, His dedication to teaching earned him a Presidential Faculty Fellows Award from the White House and the National Science Foundation. He studies the formation of the early universe. You'd be hard-pressed to meet someone more enthusiastic about science than he is. And yet, he says, science has its limits. His book, 
the island of knowledge, the limits of science, and the search for meaning. Marcelo, the title of your book, The Island of Knowledge, seems to refer to this idea that what we know is like an island in a sea of the unknown, and as we learn things, that island keeps growing, but we're still dwarfed by this vast ocean of what we don't know. Do I have that approximately correct? Yes, you do. And there is something more to this analogy, or as a metaphor, really, which is, as the island grows, so do the shores of our ignorance, because, you know, the boundary between the known and the unknown is growing with the island. So that means that the more we know about the universe, the more equipped we are to ask new questions that before we couldn't even think about. Can you give us an example? Uh, Sure. For example, when... uh, Galileo pointed the telescope to the sky. So he had a new tool in his hands. And before that, you could not even contemplate the idea that Jupiter, a planet, would have moons, you know, like the Earth was the only one that had moons. And then with that, people started to say, hey, maybe other planets have moons. And so the whole idea that the Earth was a planet got much more traction because of a discovery like that. So tools, they opened windows to whole new worlds that we couldn't even sometimes anticipate existed. But we're always chasing on the heels of those new questions with new tools and more questions and more exploration. And yet one of the premises of your book is that we have to make peace with the idea that so much is unknowable and may always be. Right. So I think my book has this uh, dual mission. One is to say that, you know, those who claim that science is going to find the final truth or the final answer are somewhat delusional or not really understanding how science works. But on the other hand, the fact that we have all these open questions is what makes science so exciting, you know, is the fact that there's always more to learn, that nature essentially is much smarter than we are. Well, one of the subtitles of your book is The Limits of Science, that's part of it, and The Search for Meaning. And what kind of meaning can scientific inquiry provide? Oh, I think science is is a profound search for meaning because especially the kind of science that I do, you know, I like the big questions. I'm a cosmologist, so I work with the Big Bang and the origin of matter and lately with the origin of life and including astrobiology. So I think what science also does, apart from designing new transistors and chips and things like that for gadgets, is connecting us to the universe as a whole. So as we learn more about the universe, as we learn more about our place in the universe and who we are and what we're made of, we're really learning about ourselves. And so, in a sense, one of the goals of science is to connect us with something much bigger than we are, which is the cosmos. Well, I'd like to press you on that a little bit. How does understanding, for example, that we live in an expanding universe or that it began, so far as we know, with the Big Bang, how does that change our understanding of who we are? Well, it changes in many ways. So, for example, I like to think historically, as as I think it's pretty clear from this book. So if you go and you had asked the same question to Columbus, right? Well, you wouldn't ask about the expanding universe part, but you'd say, so what is the universe to you? And you'd say, well, you know, it's Earth-centered, it's static, it's finite, and outside the sphere of the fixed stars, there is the realm of God. So there was a very clear understanding of his place in the universe as being the center of everything. And then we move on to modern times, and we are displaced from that center. We become 
part of a much grander narrative, which is the narrative that the universe itself now has a history, it has a beginning, it has a middle, it possibly will have some sort of ending which may be expanding forever, it may contract again. And so it positions us in a completely different place from an emotional perspective, not just a physical perspective, which is to understand that we are just part of this dance of creation and destruction that is happening everywhere in the universe at the same place. And then, just to add up to this and to connect a little bit with astrobiology, when you start looking at our search for other planets, right, and for life in other planets, we realize something very important about ourselves here on Earth, right, that even though there may be life in other places, even possibly intelligent life, the fact that we are here right now and we're the only kind of intelligence that we know makes us extremely important in the big scheme of things. And so you see that modern science Science is, in a sense, transposing us to the center of the universe, not necessarily geographically, obviously, but from a moral perspective, that we are intelligent enough to understand the importance of life and the importance of this planet. And this is all coming from modern science. Now, we've been talking about all the meaning that science can bring to our lives, but but the point of your book, or one of the points, is that it's limited as we search for meaning, that science cannot provide all those answers. And I wonder if you could give me a specific area in which science cannot answer for us and we need to find meaning in other ways. There are two kinds of limitations to our knowledge of nature. The first one is through our tools, right? Our tools, even though they extend our vision of the universe and of the very small as well, they're always limited. So no tool is exactly precise, and no tool has infinite range. There's only so much it can see, which means there's always a lot that it cannot see, which means a lot of the world is hidden from our perspective. So that's sort of the tool-driven limitation. But then you have another one, which is coming from the way nature itself operates, or the ways at least we think nature operates. Most famous example of that is the speed of light. So the fact that light has a finite speed of about 186,000 miles per second means that there's only so far that information can travel within a certain time. And so the most interesting example of that, there are several, but the most interesting is that if the universe started 13.8 billion years ago, light from the bang could only have traveled so far, which is about 42 billion light years of distance, which means that we who are centered in this bubble of information, so in a sense, here we are, we are the center of that bubble of information, which is the distance that light could have traveled that far. It means that anything that is beyond that bubble is invisible to us. And not because we don't have the right tool to probe it, but it's invisible because it's an unknowable fact of nature. We just cannot see beyond that bubble. Well, I wonder, is it the job of science and scientists to know everything? I don't hear a lot of scientists claiming that. In fact, they, they tend to claim the opposite, that there is so much that they, they can't explain, and unexplained phenomenon is like catnip to scientists, and it gives them an opportunity to explore. So the very nature of science is not to come up with all the answers, but to continue searching for explanations. Right, and that's a very good thing. However, um, there is this position called scientism, which basically claims that Only science can provide information and explanations to everything. And that's a very strong philosophical position 
to which we have to be very careful with because that is just not true. One of the very important questions that we're dealing with right now in my field is the origin of the universe itself, right? And some very famous people have claimed things like, we now understand the origin of the universe, we understand the Big Bang, it happened this or that way, so science is done when it comes to that or practically done. And that's just not true. Uh, There are lots of things we do not understand about the origin of the universe and about many, many other things. So I'm not saying that every scientist believes that science has all the answers, but I think that there is this widespread belief that science can know all the answers. And what I'm trying to say is that it simply cannot. And is that why you wrote the book? I mean, is it Are you providing a kind of corrective to a narrative about science and scientists out there in the public realm that you feel like is a a fundamental misunderstanding about the role of scientists? Yes, that is one of the main reasons that I wrote the book. And the other reason is that I wanted to not just correct this sort of misapprehension of what science is about, but also I wanted to show people how wonderful science is, that the fact that we live with our own ignorance and that it is the not knowing that propels knowing forward that makes us wake up every day, you know, with a smile on our face and say, hey, let's go to the lab, let's go to the computer and think a little more about nature. Well, we don't want to romanticize it too much. I think a lot of scientists also wake up grumpy and drag themselves to the lab because a lot of it is is drudgery and it's hard work and it's long hours and there isn't always an aha moment at the end of the day. Definitely, you know, but we're here for the long haul. So we have to think long term, not short term. Absolutely. Some projects take decades to materialize, especially projects that depend on, say, some sort of spacecraft or a particle accelerator, you know, from from applying to the grants to seeing the first data points. It's a very long, but it's still the grand picture. You know, the big picture is the one that should move us forward. And that one is a picture of, I think, of wonderment. Marcelo Gleiser, thank you very much for speaking with us. It was my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Marcelo Gleiser is a physicist and astronomer at Dartmouth College and the author of The Island of Knowledge, The Limits of Science and the Search for Meaning. So what we're learning here is that we can't know everything. He notes that the finite speed of light means there are parts of the universe we can never, ever see. So, of course, we're never going to know what's going on in there. Such as what? What you learn about the universe, you learn by looking at it with your telescopes or whatever. But if that light isn't going to get to you for another 10 billion years, you're just not going to know about it today. But still, we're hearing that science is one of the best tools we have for understanding the universe. And the case can be made that this is certainly true when it comes to ferreting out pseudoscience. Coming up, Joe Schwartz on why we should elevate our eyebrows at claims of spontaneous combustion or the effectiveness of homeopathy. It's Skeptic Check. Check the skeptics on Big Picture Science. I'm Jane Perlez longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. 
But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-Off launches April 9th. So we have lots of reasons to be skeptical about research results, as we heard earlier. We should question them even if they're published in a highfalutin journal. Make sure they get further tested and reviewed. Sure, science can explain a lot and it's going to explain more in the future, but can it explain everything? Not according to Marcelo Gleiser, but that doesn't lessen its value. And so inherent in science is this need to question and to be skeptical, even with your peers, especially with your peers. So it appears. And and with your co-host jokes, you should be very skeptical about those and their quality, but also about claims that the world throws at you that don't come from the research community. Yeah, say that someone tells you that there's a miracle cure for all disease produced by a Professor Pablum. Well, no one should buy Professor Pablum's miracle elixir to cure themselves without knowing whether it's been tested. And yet to say one is a skeptic has, in some circles, come to mean something off-putting making one the proverbial wet blanket. And then last night, the ghost rattled the whole house. And then the photo of my twin brother tipped over. Uh, You know, we were hit by a magnitude 4.6 earthquake last night. Any chance that that could have... (coughs) Anyway, Bob, then what? Did the ghost try to levitate you? (laughs) Well, in fact, A skeptic is frequently associated with the person who raises question and takes all the fun out of everything, says Joe Schwartz, and he wants to change that. The word skeptic is not a dirty word. A skeptic is just a person who says, okay, show me the evidence, and we're happy to go along with it as long as the evidence is there. Sometimes, you know, when you say that you're a skeptic, you're accused of being closed-minded, which, of course, we're not. We're open-minded, obviously not so open that our brain falls out, but open-minded in terms of the evidence. So that's what skepticism is all about. And is your effort primarily directed to the public as opposed to, say, the research community? No, it's directed uh, across the board. Uh, We teach a number of courses to undergrads, and uh, critical thinking always plays a role there. What the peer-reviewed literature is all about and why we trust something that appears in New England Journal of Medicine more than what appears in the National Enquirer. So uh, we target everyone, but personally, uh, you know, I deal a lot with the general public because I do a radio show and I write newspaper columns. So I do attract a lot of pseudoscience-minded people who try to convince me, you know, of their ideas. And of course, in return, I flood them with scientific evidence. Well, all right, let's take a couple of examples, Joe, because you have uh, something like five dozen examples in your most recent book. They seem to fall into categories uh, ranging from the pretty incredible all the way to the fairly credible. Let's start with some of the things that people believe despite a near total lack of uh, facts. 
spontaneous combustion of humans, for example, would be one. People believe that, you know, all of a sudden uh, you can burst into flames and disappear. And while there's some interesting examples of people burning in an unusual way, it's not a question of spontaneous combustion. I mean, people do not just self-ignite. That doesn't happen. But I think that uh, my biggest pet peeve in terms of issues out there for which there is widespread belief without any evidence is homeopathy. Uh, homeopathy to me is the most absurd of all of the so-called alternative treatments. Maybe you can give us uh, a quick discourse on what homeopathy is for those who don't know. Yes, it's a very good question because we have done surveys on that. And I find that most people, in fact, do not know what homeopathy is. They think that it's some sort of general term to describe all alternative practices. That is, you know, reflexology, acupuncture, iridology, anything that is not mainstream. This is totally wrong. Homeopathy is one very specific area of medical practice, or, well, I would say pseudo-medical practice, that was initiated about 200 years ago by Samuel Hahnemann, a German physician. He was properly educated, you know, as properly as anyone was educated in those days in medical school. I mean, what did they learn? They learned how to bleed patients and essentially how to torture patients back to health. He was worried that these things weren't working very well, that, you know, bloodletting wasn't the way to go. And he decided to try something that was kinder and gentler. And at that time, quinine extracted from the bark of the cinchona tree that grew in South America was the only treatment for malaria. They didn't know it was quinine. They just knew that the extract of the bark worked. But they didn't know really how much to give. So he experimented on himself, which they did in those days. They used themselves as guinea pigs. And he wanted to see how much of this extract he could take before anything bad would happen so that he could give a safe amount to his patients. He started taking more and more, and he got a fever. And he realized that quinine, or the bark of the tree, was used to treat malaria, which is feverish. So he came to this conclusion that if in a healthy person a substance causes symptoms, then it will treat those symptoms in a sick person. Now, this is a total scientific non sequitur. And then he hatched another scheme, believing that the smaller the dose, the more powerful the medication. Because, of course, to his patients, he had been giving less than what he took himself to trigger the symptoms. Thus was born homeopathy. The term itself means like cures like. That is, a substance that in a healthy person causes symptoms will cure the like symptoms in a sick person. Today, we know that homeopathic solutions essentially contain nothing. They are diluted to the extent there's not even a single molecule of the original left. So now, with us chemists breathing down the necks of homeopaths, they have had to come up with an alternate explanation. And they say that the dilution process and bagging the solution into a leather pillow between each dilution leaves an imprint of the original molecule on the water. This is scientifically absurd. And furthermore, even if there were something to that, why would anyone think that an imprint of a molecule would have any curative properties? So homeopathy is based on the placebo effect, which affects people 30 to 40% of the time. There's nothing wrong with the placebo effect when you don't misguide people by saying that it's a real therapy. Okay, so homeopathy, uh, it's easy to make the arguments you've just made them, why it really couldn't work. I mean, it just violates everything we know about science, it seems, and yet a fair fraction of the populace uh, trusts homeopathy? Sure, because the placebo effect is a very, very powerful effect. The mind has a tremendous power over the body. And if you believe that something is going to do good for you, 
30 to 40 percent of the time it will, whether it's some homeopathic remedy or whether it's the triply distilled chromatographed extract of virgin Himalayan mules. If you believe that it is going to do something, there's a chance it will. But one thing that has to be, I think, underlined is that feeling better is not the same thing as being better. So, yes, you can have the placebo effect, you can feel better, but the underlying pathology is still there. And that is the real risk of homeopathy, is that sometimes patients get distracted from conventional therapies that actually work because they have developed such a strong belief in alternative practices such as homeopathy. Joe, maybe you could give me some examples of uh, phenomena that uh, sound at first to listen, implausible, but are nonetheless supported by facts, uh, sort of the other end of the spectrum right. here. I think uh, the, the classic example there is Helicobacter pylori, the bacteria that causes ulcers, or at least about 80% of ulcers. Uh, when Australian gastroenterologist Barry Marshall first suggested that ulcers were caused by bacterium, Helicobacter pylori, the scientific community looked at him as if he were crazy because we knew what caused ulcers. Ulcers were caused by stress. They were caused by too much acid in the stomach, that is hyperacidity, maybe heredity, but not by bacteria. But he was convinced that this particular bacterium played a role. And in a rather foolhardy way, he demonstrated his case by taking some of the bacteria, swallowing it, and triggering uh, gastrointestinal problems, which he then resolved with antibiotics. Well, as soon as the evidence came clear, people, of course, jumped on that bandwagon, even though at first it sounded implausible. In fact, many claimed that it was ridiculous. But then, very quickly, studies were mounted. Randomized controlled trials showed that antibiotics worked against Helicobacter. And within a year, doctors around the world were prescribing antibiotics for ulcers and curing most of them. So here was something that at first sounded nonsensical, but as soon as the evidence poured in, it crossed the bridge from being so-called alternative to conventional. So how does this work for you? I mean, if somebody makes a strange statement, I don't know, for example, that men are really genetically wired to hog the TV remote, how do you, Joe, go about deciding whether to give it credence or not? Well, I think this is a fact, right? Everyone knows that that, that is true. <laughs> now, uh, the burden of proof is always on the claimant because science can never prove a negative. So it's not up to us to prove that something cannot happen because that is just not possible. Uh, James Randi, who, who, of course, has done a tremendous amount in promoting critical thinking, gives a very good example. And the example is uh, flying reindeer. I think most of us would think that reindeer really cannot fly. But, you know, there are those who claim that they can. So I really couldn't prove that they can't. I mean, I could take a reindeer, take him up to the top of a tall building and nudge it off. And let's face it, if that animal ever in its life were motivated to fly, that's the moment. Uh, I think we'd have a mess at the bottom. I could repeat it again and again. But the only thing we would have proven is that those reindeer today, for some reason, could not or chose not to fly. There may be eight reindeer somewhere in the world, given the right opportunity, the right date, the right stimulus, maybe they can fly. But it is up to those who make that claim to come up with the evidence. 
Talking about skepticism in general, what about skepticism when it comes to, you know, scientific research? I mean, scientists are assumed to be skeptical, but today a lot of people seem to be skeptical about science. Now, I can remember a time back in the 1950s when scientists were almost godlike. I mean, they would put guys selling cigarettes on TV in white lab coats to give them credibility. But today, you know, roughly half of all Americans don't seem to believe what scientists are telling them about climate change. How has skepticism come to this, that we're skeptical of the experts? Yeah, well, unfortunately, that isn't totally unjustified. Uh, Nobody has a monopoly on the truth. And there are all kinds of vested interests and egos that come into play. And scientists are human. I know that some people would argue that case, but (laughs) they are human with all the possible foibles. And uh, while we kind of worship at the altar of, you know, the peer-reviewed literature, the fact is that the peer-reviewed literature is not always correct. Uh, One of the best examples of that is Andrew Wakefield's essentially fraudulent paper about vaccination, which appeared in The Lancet one of the top scientific journals in the world. What people have to realize that the referees, the experts who review a paper that has been sent in for publication, do not redo the work. I mean, they have to assume, of course, that the work uh, was done in the way that the paper specifies and that the data is indeed correct. So Andrew Wakefield's paper got into the literature because it made sense within the paper itself. Only later did it come out that the data were highly questionable. But by that time, we were seeing measles epidemics, you know, that we hadn't seen for a long time because people did not trust vaccination. So I think it is appropriate to be skeptical. And that's why we never put too much emphasis on a single paper in any publication. In science, you always want to see repetition. And when an experiment is repeated and someone else in a different lab finds the same data, that's when we start to look at it very seriously. Science tends to be a self-correcting discipline. We make mistakes, that's for sure. But it gets corrected relatively quickly. You know, I mean, it wasn't so long ago that when someone had a heart attack, you used to put them on bed rest for six weeks. Well, we know that that doesn't make any sense. There never was any real evidence for that. And now after a heart attack, you get patients up as as quickly as possible. Things change in science, and they get corrected quickly. Whereas in the pseudoscientific world, that doesn't happen. Today, the arguments that are being used, you know, for the basis of, of homeopathy, for example, are the same that they used 200 years ago. There has been no, no real evolution in that area. Well, it sounds as if you are confident that eventually the truth will out when it comes to science, that it is self-correcting, even in today's world of highly specialized research. So uh, the, the system still works? I think that the system works. And, uh, you know, as, as Churchill said... Democracy is a terrible system, but tell me one that's better. (laughs) Uh, So it's the same here. You know, I'd like to hear suggestions about what would work better. What other method is there than the scientific method to gather information that we can test to see whether or not it's reliable? Joe Schwartz, thank you so very much for speaking with us today. Well, thanks very much for having me. Joe Schwartz is a professor of chemistry and the director of the Office for Science and Society at McGill University in Montreal. Okay, so the summary Yes. in the skeptic check. Well, we started with that experience that the public has when they open up a newspaper or they turn on the radio and they read about it, hear about a scientific study. That is the opposite 
of a conclusion that had been drawn just a month ago or so. And then also that scientists can't answer all the questions, all the mysteries of the world. They don't know what dark matter is, at yep. least at this point. And so that's the basic conundrum. But what we heard in this show is that that is also the very backbone of science, those questions, that skepticism, those limits to what we can answer. Right. And I look at it as a half-full glass because, you know, 400 years ago, before the Enlightenment, people didn't have the opinion they could learn this sort of stuff, right? All knowledge was revealed. It wasn't discovered. So, indeed, I consider this a great success. Maybe we can't learn everything, but there's so much we could. We've also heard in the show about the role of skepticism, not only within science itself, but within those claims of science that turn out to be junk science or pseudoscience. It sounds to me like skepticism is a good trait to have. At least it's a good theme for a radio show. And we would like to thank our production team, to which we are double-blind certain. We owe our gratitude, Gary Niederhoff and Barbara Vance. And special guest stars in this episode, Gabriel Alvarado and Debbie Collier. Financial support from Google, also Rena Shulsky-David and Sammy David, and the NASA Astrobiology Institute. Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute. And a big thanks also to our listeners. And those listeners' ears have been attuned to Skeptic Check. Check the skeptics. Or have they? If you're not sure that that's accurate, good for you. Double check by going to our website and listening. Again, we also have an archive of Big Picture Science episodes, including Skeptic Check. But don't take our word for it. Check out the veracity of that statement at the same website, bigpicturescience.org. And while you're online doing all of that, why not save yourself the time it takes to do multiple clicks and download the Big Picture Science app. You can find it on iTunes, Android, and Windows 8. Plus, you can get the show on Stitcher. And if you're a podcast listener but you prefer over-the-air radio because it feels more reliable, check out the listing on our website of radio stations that carry the program. And if your local station is not on that list, well, consider letting them know you like the show. Oh, and do you have a comment, a criticism, or a suggestion, or possibly even praise? Well, write us at bigpicturescience at SETI.org. Ooh! Skeptic Check is brought to you thanks to a generous grant from the Trimberger Family Foundation. At the Trimberger Family Foundation, we hold that skepticism is a lamp that lights the way to truth. Trimberger.org. Tech moves fast. So keep pace with the Daily Crunch podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes every day, this podcast will give you a quick overview on everything you need and should know about startups, new tech, regulations, and more. Listen to TechCrunch Daily Crunch now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's TechCrunch Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts. The world is constantly changing and transforming. Cut through some of the noise with What's New with Wired, a podcast that goes in-depth on the latest news in technology and culture. Their award-winning journalism will help you make sense of what's happening in the world. Listen to What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. That's What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts.